0: listening to The Voices Project broadcast on Radio Boise, bringing you narrative-driven audio features on universal themes, all made by local producers. I'm Olivia Wheats. In this episode, we have stories that explore uncharted territories. You'll hear from people going out on a limb to try new things, Idahoans who create in spaces where things didn't exist. First up, a story about an electronic music fan who turned a warehouse into Boise's biggest dance party.
1: something special about a big open industrial space and you don't have to have much like you could just have a bare light bulb hanging in the middle you know it's just a fog machine and that's enough and like you can create an environment like that I'm Dave Foster I live in Boise Idaho I moved here in 1993 and When I did, I was very much into electronic music and all-night dance parties that, at the time, we called raves.
2: Injected
3: with a poison!
4: Dave grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. In the mid-80s, he went off to college in Providence, Rhode Island, where he was introduced to two big influences, electronic dance music and performance art. There's all these
1: warehouses there, like old, and old factories. Uh, just, I just met a lot of, of people that were interested in, in doing creative things in the underground. In
4: 1993, Dave's employer sent him to Boise for what he thought would be a temporary assignment.
1: I got here and uh, turned on uh, KBSU, and the punk show Mutant Pop was playing. And I'm like, oh, man, the Northwest, like, this is great. Uh, You know, they'd already been doing a bunch of dance parties at the Crazy Horse. Uh, So I thought, look, let's try to do something really big.
4: His big idea? Throw a warehouse party like the ones he'd experienced in Providence. In the spring of 94, he and his friends printed up flyers to advertise their first Boise rave.
1: The first one, the theme was bliss. And it probably had some language in there about you don't have to be an electronic music fan. like You could just be interested in something different. I don't know how, but somehow I convinced the S-16 Corporation, which is the 16 grandchildren of TR Simplot, to allow us to rent this vacant space in the 8th Street Marketplace.
4: Dave and his crew spent weeks planning. Before night even fell on the day of the rave, people started showing up.
1: People were dressed up either in drag or club kid clothes, people in all black, a big, big range. There's people all over the place like hanging over rafters and stuff.
4: The lineup for the evening included DJs playing house music, but also a few live bands playing noisy electronic and industrial music
1: called Wirehead. They were very edgy because they addressed a lot of issues about war and technology and surveillance and military industrialization. To fight I think a lot of people who had never seen them before were a little bit freaked out by it. Right, But at the time, I think maybe there's maybe a little more openness to having a live performance.
4: Soon enough, the crowd was into it.
1: Uh, I'm sure they were having a really intense dissociative experience, especially if they were using LSD. And I got a little bit worried about them later on in the night when security guard said, okay, we have, we have to shut this down. I, I said, you know, let me, let me wind this down. Let's not do this in a abrupt way. I didn't feel like it would be safe to just send a bunch of people out onto the street. I ran over to a all night coffee shop and it was called the Dream Walker. Is it okay if I bring the party over here? And they said, yeah, sure, you know, we like the business. So uh, I just got on the PA system and told everyone, OK, we're closing down here, you we're know, all going over there. Okay. And like, a lot of people, it's probably like 75 people, all went over to the train walker. DJs hauled all the equipment over, and just kept going uh, until dawn. Other people started, you know, doing the heavy lifting or organizing. Every weekend after that, that sort of became the dance party in town rather than the crazy horse.
4: The warehouse raves continued for a year or so before eventually branching out into other spaces. But Dave says that it's not just the spaces that have changed.
1: It's not like it is now with electronic dance music where, like, you oh, well, you're not into like, this particular slice of the things. Like, it was much more open then. But yeah, where if you wanted to do a warehouse show now, I don't know where you'd do it.
4: This piece was written and produced by Carl B. for Radio Boise's Voices Project. Special thanks to Dave Foster, Jake Height, and to Mike Grenz of Wirehead for the use of his music. Original guitar music by Speedy Gray. Additional music is from the 1994 Party
0: Zone Techno Megamix. In this next story, we get out of town to a silversmith shop. This time, the creative instigators are cowboy artists. Many are self-taught. But recently, a group of them took a rare opportunity to learn from some masters at a workshop organized by the Idaho Commission on the Arts. We're at Dave Alderson's shop, just outside of Twin Falls. The noise you hear is coming from a lathe. It's the silversmith's version of a pottery wheel.
5: trying to even the shape out right now, so then it'll be uh, laid flat up against this form.
0: The form Dave's referring to is a piece of wood that's shaped like a light bulb. He
5: uses a metal tool to push the silver around the wood
0: as it spins.
5: The ability to move that, that amount of, of silver in, in uh, that stroke without wrinkling or cracking it, it's just amazing. Randy Kildow
0: is observing with wide eyes. He hasn't seen the spinning process up close before.
5: And it's an art. It's a feel. It's not, not anything uh, that you can measure other than with feel.
0: Randy's made silver decorations for saddles and other gear, but nothing that involves this much shaping.
5: It's not something you learn in in a matter of uh, hours. It's something that, to do what he's doing right now, may take a lifetime.
0: Randy is aware of how long it takes. He's been working with silver since the early 1980s. At the time, he was living near Blackfoot, making saddles and manufacturing guns.
5: I had a need for gold and silver inlaying and lettering and stuff on the guns. It was not available locally, so I went down to a goldsmith shop in, in town and uh, started talking to the gentleman that ran that.
0: Randy learned what he could about silver from a goldsmith, and this was at a time when he said artisans in rural Idaho didn't share much. Some were protective of their craft. Randy wanted to keep learning.
5: I have called other people on, on the phone, went with a specific question, the rest of it, I've figured it out on, my, on the hard way.
0: Being at least partly self-taught was a common refrain that I heard from other silversmiths at the workshop.
1: I just wanted to make it myself. I could see it, knew I had the ability. I thought, well, I'll just jump in and do it. I was on my own. I, I
4: grabbed a jeweler's saw
1: and the ball of a hitch off of a
4: pickup and a little tuna fish can full of lead, and that's how I formed silver for a long time after years of building saddles not really finding the silver that i wanted to put on them i i decided to start building my own silver and so i gathered up some tools and that and just kind of uh by guessing by golly um started doing a little engraving and trying to learn from books and and anybody that i could uh, pick their brain at you know of how how to do it
0: back in the shop another instructor is displaying a different technique.
3: I don't even know what this will be. We're just showing the process, but it, whether you're making a bowl or a coffee pot or any tableware, this is kind of how you would start it.
0: Dave Murray isn't using a machine. He's using a hammer and a metal stick that's shaped like a mushroom on the top.
3: Feel that ridge? If you want to tap that out, that'll, that's what we're trying to do.
0: Here's how Dave's shaping it. He puts the bowl upside down over the stake. He then rotates it around and hammers it in key places to bring up the curve of the bowl.
3: You just feel it with your, you can roll your, you can feel it with your finger or you can mark it with a pencil. If you want.
0: He watches on as his students try to mimic the technique. I think it's looking terrific.
4: Very impressive with the, the way that he's drawn it up into a, a curve at the, at the edges of the bowl makes it look very
0: hand-done. The quality of silversmithing in Idaho has steadily improved. For that to continue, silversmiths say that it's important to pass it on to the next generation.
3: I've had the opportunity to teach um, a few other cowboys you know, that have come into the shop to learn bit-making. Um, uh, a little bit of silversmithing to them, too, you know, shaping conchos and engraving and a few things like that.
6: And I've taught a couple, a couple of girls, you know, they've come and wanted to learn how to make the rings, and so I've come and they've, I've taught them, and they're actually making them now, so it's kind of cool to watch and see.
4: I've taught one of my children to engrave, and the other one I've been teaching him, the silversmithing. If people like us don't continue and, and pass
5: it on, it will die out.
0: These silversmiths didn't get here by chance. It took hard work and persistence. Arts like theirs, that take years and years to master, are worth continuing. In this piece, you heard from Silversmiths, who attended a workshop in July organized by the Idaho Commission on the Arts. Among them are...
5: Randy Kildow. Greg McDonald. Scott Hall. Jeff Miner. Chris Cheney.
0: Annie Wingsgaard.
5: Casey Backus.
0: This was produced by Olivia Wheats, with support from the Idaho Commission on the Arts. You're listening to The Voices Project broadcast on Radio Boise. In this half hour, we're sharing stories about people who have made creative leaps into unfamiliar territory. We'll be right back.
4: Programming on Radio Boise is supported in part by Story Story Night, presenting part three of their summer late night series, Liar Liar Pants on Fire at Visual Arts Collective on Tuesday, August 29th. This event features storytellers, an open story slam, and live music. Tickets and more are available at storystorynight.org.
6: I'm Stephanie Coyle, host of Mother's Ruin, every Thursday from noon to 3 on Radio Boise. In case you think by the title you're going to spend three hours being lectured to or told to eat your peas, the answer is yes. If those things could be equated to being entertained with cuts from up-and-coming bands, smatterings of historical gems, and heady soul, along with some guilty pleasures. I'll also bring you the program visits from musical guests and interviews with the movers and shakers who make Boise such a great place to live. That's Mother's Ruin every Thursday on KRBX. It's like an advance on your allowance every
3: week, all year. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? And Thou art more lovely and sitting. more temperate Rough winds do shake on the darling
0: buds of May And, and some
1: alith hath
2: all
5: too short a date.
0: We make sense of all the lines out there The poetry shout with me, your host, Daphne Stanford. Every Sunday afternoon at 5 p.m. on Radio Boise. In case you're just joining us, you're listening to The Voices Project broadcast. Before you hear the final story, we're going to turn to the streets of Boise. In July, our producers asked the public some questions that they wanted some answers to.
4: On a hot Saturday afternoon in July, I walked up Capitol Boulevard from the river toward downtown asking people about the challenges in their work and what they wish others knew about the job they do.
0: My name's uh, Ariane, and I'm a Circulation Department Specialist, which basically means I work the front counter. I think I want them to know how involved we are in the community, how much we care about the community here.
4: Marcus Bonilla, Real Foods Fish Market, Oyster Bar, and now Sushi. We can actually educate you about the fish, tell you about how to cook it, and actually give you recipes to make it a whole lot easier for you to actually enjoy the fish that you buy because a lot of people don't know how to cook it or they're scared.
6: My name's Larissa Wallace. I work at Long Drop um, Cider Company
1: and I work as like a bartender at the tasting room. Well when it is really full and there's lots of people in here, it's really nice to interact with everybody in the community. Some ciders can take like two weeks to make, but then some ciders take like a month or two to like prep and things like that. So a lot of the behind the scenes stuff is like really important, but No one really gets to see it when they
6: come in here, I guess. I'm Emily Morgan. I'm an Idaho core coach. um, And I work for, through the State Department of Education, doing professional development for teachers. So growing everybody from where they are when they come to you, um,
0: which is much like a classroom is where you have 30 people sitting in front of you that all need to learn something, and they're all starting at a different place. So how do you get them to the next spot they need to be while addressing everybody's needs? My name is Marlene Lords, and I work at Tony's Pizzeria and I'm a server. Accommodating all kinds of people, you know, uh, trying to make everybody happy when it's kind of a hard, hard job to do that. But servers work harder than they think. Um, my name is Kaylee Johnson. I'm a hairstylist and I work at the studio in downtown Boise. One thing I wish people knew about our job was that we don't have magic wands that zap your hair into, like, beauty. It takes time and money and Patience. How people react to uh, when you just do something amazing, and you took all that time, and you're—they're impressed with your artwork on themselves, and uh, just just making people feel really pretty and beautiful. That's the best part.
4: This piece was produced by Jim Frederickson for Radio
1: Boise's Voices Project. There's a lot of talk about what you hope to achieve, but what are you actually doing to accomplish those plans?
0: We want to acknowledge those who take action and say to them, "Right on, man." So we asked people, what are you just beginning?
2: What am I just beginning? Well, I always think of books when it comes to that, that I'm just beginning books, but I couldn't tell you which one it is because I'm just beginning hundreds of them right now.
0: I just started doing photography for Story Story Late Night. Oh. Nice. Yeah. So I usually do product photography yeah. and like take pictures of bread at the bakery, but now I'm taking pictures of real life humans.
1: I guess you could say I'm just beginning my research project. I'm a graduate student, and so
2: I work on biomaterial sorts of things. And, you know, for various
1: reasons, it hadn't come together yet, and now it is, so that's cool.
0: One person that we talked to got at the deeper nature of our pursuits as human beings and lended a broader perspective
1: on the previous answers. I honestly feel like I'm just beginning to become a person. For all of my childhood and up through college, I felt like I was just following other people's ideologies, other people's uh, perceptions and uh, beliefs. Like everything was just something I'd been told, or I looked it up, and I kind of like picked out the things that I chose to believe. But I never really went out on my own, did my own discovering, and like figured out like what is it that I believe, like what is it, and like making it myself instead of just looking at what other people have said. I feel like I'm just now beginning to get an understanding of who I am. Mm -hmm. I've found the beginning of my journey, but also it is just the beginning.
0: That called to mind Sisyphus, pushing his boulder up the incline for eternity. Although it can be tiring to work towards completing an end that never actually comes, no one we interviewed seemed to despair at this thought. Instead, they seemed optimistic that their beginnings would bring them joy. As Albert Camus said, and I quote, One must imagine Sisyphus happy. And this you heard from Chelsea Herrada, Tripp Taylor, Robin Lindman, and Ben Truem. This piece was produced by Catherine Walton and Anne Ettenreyes for Radio Radio Boise's 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 Voices Project. Thanks for listening and rock on!
1: Nasty. She... Slobbery. Fantastic. It
6: made me melt.
1: Silly. Sloppy.
6: What do all of these unrelated words have in common? Well, they describe the exact same thing. This is Tara Brandenburg for KRBX eighty nine point nine Radio Boise, and I interviewed eight people.
5: My name's Seth
1: Wayne.
6: Shelby. Wayne. Brittany,
0: Timon,
1: Oz,
6: and asked them all the same question. How old were you when you had your first kiss?
1: Oh, God. <laughs> um, first real kiss? Uh,
5: eight?
6: And interestingly enough, every person described a completely different experience. Whereas some first kisses were cute and romantic. Kiss
1: me, you fool. We were at the top of Highland View. And it rained for a minute, and then, uh, I don't know, I just went in for a kiss. Just felt like the right time.
3: And it's funny, because
1: that hill's gone now, actually. They just actually bulldozed it to make a subdivision. So it's kind of funny driving by there and thinking, like, my first kiss is somewhere 20 feet in the air.
6: Other first kisses were more like a schoolyard game.
1: It was grade school, and these girls
2: would play this game. They would try to capture the boys and then they would lead one boy to the middle and then this one girl would kiss you.
0: It was at recess and we were laying down in the grass. Mm -hmm. Yep, and it was a kid that kissed me right under the table
1: and then I ran away. I was riding home from school on the bus and there was a neighbor gal that rode the bus and she came up to me and she
6: kissed me. And the rest of the kisses, well, they can best be described as Awkward high school moment.
0: Um, I was at a high school dance, and I was, had been dating this guy for, like, a week. I was, like, 16, and he went in to kiss me, and I would never kissed anybody, and I kind of just, like, turned my face a little bit, and he kind of, like, ate my face. We walked the river, and
1: we just, like,
2: paused for a minute, and I felt like his lips, like, my mouth. Like, it was kind of just, like, oh, whoa. Like, totally ill. Oh, my God. It's so gross. I um,
1: I snuck out of my house and she picked me up and we went to a house party and we made out and she definitely showed me the way.
6: Even though the scenario was the same, the first kiss, every single person had such a different experience and this just shows us how even our sloppiest, mashiest experiences can shape our subjective reality. This piece was produced by Tara Brandenburg for Radio Voices' Voices Project. Voice effects were by Bridges.
0: Now it's time for our final piece. Our neighbors, in the dry and deserty Hagerman Valley, cultivate a surprising amount of freshwater fish. Wayne Burt and Sienna White introduce us to one intrepid fellow who saw the opportunity there and ran or swam with it.
2: (laughs) When I first heard the term, I thought, what is that? A sequel to the Jethro Toll song? A term to describe the world of cultivating sea monkeys in the bottoms of bathtubs? Ultimately, I asked my fellow reporter, Sienna White, as we drove to the Hagerman Valley. Can you explain aquaculture a little bit?
0: Yeah, they're growing catfish and
5: tilapia out in the hot spring water.
2: It's not just people that hang out at swimming pools.
5: <laughs> no, <laughs> poolside culture.
2: <laughs> oh, poolside. Yeah, I got the two confused. Enter Leo Ray. Leo speaks with a bit of a drawl, which makes sense considering he was born and raised in Oklahoma. How does someone from Oklahoma find himself operating a fish farm in the Higgeman Valley? Keyword catfish.
3: Went to college at the University of Oklahoma. I was taking invertebrate zoology, and a professor got a research grant to study the feasibility of raising catfish on a farm. It was the first research money on catfish, and the catfish industry developed as a result of the research. I uh, I built a catfish farm first and everybody thought I was crazy. <laughs> to think you can raise catfish in Idaho, why aren't you raising trout, that beautiful <laughs> trout instead of an ugly old catfish. Yeah, the noble creature. And then in a few re- few years they realized I was getting more money for my catfish than they were getting for their trout.
2: Was it a soft spot for the ugly catfish for the underdog? Not really. It was business. And it didn't stop
3: there. And I've been here about three years and the Imperial Irrigation District came to me and wanted to know if I would grow tilapia for them so they could stock them in the canals to eat the moss in the canals. Oh. So four or five years, I sold them a bunch of tilapia every year. Mm -hmm. I think I was the first one in the United States to grow tilapia.
2: Despite being the smallest fish processor in the valley, Leo's a folk hero of sorts. Someone who understands that giving back to the place you live keeps local economies strong because he's seen how it can go otherwise.
3: In my lifetime, the biggest change that I have seen is the disappearance of small business. And an awful lot of that is government policy. It's not intended to run the small business out, but big business has the political clout. Walmart says when they move in, they'll put 16 businesses out of town business. And the first Walmart in the Magic Valley was in Jerome. And downtown Jerome dried up. Walmart could take care of every business that was down there.
2: little has been around in the valley since 1973, growing his business and trying various species, including alligators.
3: I was looking for a garbage disposal. And the problem with it is alligators get West Nile virus, and it can live in the meat yeah. after it's been frozen. Yeah. So oh my. that's really.
2: One thing for certain, touring the valley and the various facets of Leo's fish processing operation, from the two off site facilities for hatchlings, to the concrete raceways thick with sturgeon, to the high pressure fish meal production plant under construction, you see why this is a place to invest in. Plus,
3: water has a romance to it.
2: Leo's been here for over 40 years, proving when it comes to even invertebrates, it takes a lot of backbone to raise anything.
0: <laughs> Ow fish! Those are giant fish right there!
2: Produced by Wayne Burt, Tara Brandenburg, and Sienna White for Radio Boise.
0: You've been listening to The Voices Project broadcast on Radio Boise, a program bringing you narrative-driven audio features on universal themes, all created by local producers. To listen to these pieces again, visit Radio Boise's SoundCloud page online. I'm Olivia Wheats. Thanks for tuning in. Music in this broadcast is Schmaltz by Jazzar and Springish by Gillicuddy.